Welcome to Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Hammond of Axios with Elizabeth Spires of New York Times and Places. Hello. With Emily Peck of Axios. Hello, hello. And we are going to talk about rent this week and why it's so high and what might be causing it to be coming down and the sheer astonishing amount of money that people are spending on rent these days. We are going to talk about parental leave and the whole mischievous around what happened in Texas this week. We are going to talk about Josh Wine. What is it and why is it so popular? We have a frankly awesome Slate Plus segment on tea. It's a good one this week. It's all coming up on Slate Money. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. I feel like there's a significant difference of opinion between me and Emily and probably Elizabeth on the subject of the rent is too damn high. Why don't you kick us off, Emily, and basically tell us what is the news and how you see the the rental housing situation right now? Okay. So the reason we're talking about this today is because there's this new Harvard report that came out. It's like 60 pages long, all about the rental market that shows half of all renters are now paying more than 30% of their income in utilities in rent. And a record 12.6 million Americans are spending more than half of their income on housing. I mean, I hate to use the rent is too damn high after that guy who ran for New York City mayor like more than a decade ago, but we all remember his slogan. Women can't afford to take care of their children, feed their children breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Our children can't afford to live anywhere. There's nowhere to go. Once again, why? You said it, the rent is too damn high. But the rent is too damn high. It soared in the pandemic, not initially, but by 2021, rents started increasing at rates that, you know, really were kind of unheard of. And depending on the measure you look at, rents are now anywhere from like 20% to 40% higher asking rents than they were when the pandemic started. 
Now, inflation is coming down. We learned on Friday, we got even more numbers to show inflation coming down, and that's true of rental inflation. So rental rents are not rising at the pace they were before. And in fact, in some markets, rents are slightly coming down. Now, as far as I, to be fair to Felix, Felix is like, that's great news. Because at the same time, the rents are coming down. A lot of new rental properties are coming online. There's like a boom in multifamily building that has led to kind of a glut. And in some markets, there's a glut of these new rental buildings and vacancy rates are up. So you could paint what's happening now in the rental market as like kind of a good news story. But the fact is, I think it's not a good news story. Rents are way higher than they used to be. There are a lot of people spending most of their money on rent. And when that happens, that means they're not spending money on things like healthcare or food. And it also has led to record increases in homelessness. I, there's amazingly, Emily, there's basically nothing in there I would disagree with. I think I think we're surprisingly aligned. But I want to dive into this a little bit further because the first big question I want to ask you is what caused the rise in rents over the past three or four years. They went up at a pretty unprecedented speed. So why was that? So it was the pandemic. The pandemic led to a lot of people moved. A lot of people moved. They moved on their own, living by themselves. Um, there was a lot of new household formation. People moved from you know, the cities out to the suburbs. People moved from small to big. There was just a lot of moving. And when there's a lot of moving, Landlords can raise rents higher than if it's just a renewal. If it's a, a new lease, they can raise rents more. So a lot of that household formation drove the increase, is my understanding. Yeah. And I think this is this is one of the key things that's going on here is this concept of household formation, which is a slightly weird, nerdy thing that probably wants to get unpacked a little bit. Basically, if you are a you know teenager and then you move out of your home into your own apartment. That is a household formation. You've, a, a new household right. has been formed. If you have three people who are living as roommates and then they're like, I don't want to be on top of these other people and breathing all of their air in the pandemic and I want my own place, then suddenly those three people, that, that one household with three people can become three households. The number of people is the same, but the number of households has increased. And as you say, if you say, like, I need a home office, I need more space, I need all of this kind of stuff that happened during the pandemic, all of that has the effect of basically increasing demand for a relatively fixed stock of real estate. Now, as you were saying, construction is actually booming or was booming, and vacancies are beginning to come up and people are trying to meet that demand. But yeah, a lot of this is behavioral, people wanting to especially, I want to say this, like younger people moving to cities. You're not seeing the crazy rent inflation in most of the Midwest. It's it's mostly a coastal phenomenon. You are seeing it overall, especially over the last 20 years. You know, if you look at the numbers for um, median rents, they've gone up 21% since 2001. And when you look at incomes for renters, they're only up 2% over the same period. And so that discrepancy is a big deal, even if you remove the pandemic factors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is a long-term trend. That's a really good point. This has been going on for, yeah, the past 20 years. Right. And and part of the reason why it's been going on for the past 20 years is because there is this kind of deep structural difference in America, which there isn't in most countries, between 
owner-occupied housing and rental housing. Rental housing in general is housing that was built with the specific purpose to be rental housing. And most renters live in buildings that were specifically constructed as rental buildings. And most owners live in buildings that were specifically constructed to be sold as an owner-occupied building. So it's like two different classes of building. And if you look at the construction history over that 20 years that Elizabeth was talking about, the amount of housing that was built to be sold vastly outpaces the amount of housing that was built to be rented. And so this helps to explain why there's such a big shortage of rental housing. The two asset classes are kind of not nearly as fungible here as they are in other countries. And then people get upset when, you know, big private equity companies come in and buy up single family homes in Arizona and start renting them out. And they say, this is terrible. And it's not terrible. They are increasing the rental housing stock, which is exactly what America needs right now. Yeah, I would also say within, so there are these two classes, you know, building for rental and building for sale. But within the building for rental market, another change has been going on that is particularly harmful to lower income Americans. And that is the rental stock is shifting and there's more um, high price rentals being built and more low price rentals are sort of going away. I think the Harvard report said like the market lost like 6 million units renting for less than a thousand dollars. I don't know what, over what time period, but what's happening is the, the people building multifamily rentals are targeting higher income people, just like in a lot of places, in a lot of areas of the economy. And the, the affordable housing, affordable rentals are really going away. Either they're becoming dilapidated or they're getting you know, revitalized as just higher priced units. So within the rental market, even as the the good news of like rents aren't going up and even coming down in some areas, a lot of that's confined to these like much higher price rentals that lower income Americans, even if the prices of those rentals come down a little bit, they still can't afford them. Yeah. And I think people don't realize, you know, how vast that problem is for lower income renters. But when you consider that, you know, 26% of renters make less than 24K a year, that's a huge swath of the population. Yeah. These are very low income. Renters in the US are fairly low income group, though there are these, like you guys were talking about, you know, younger people who make more money moving to the the cities who are who are renters. But overall, I, this is a primarily lower income group. Yeah, again, this is also related to the household formation thing, right? That there's a little tinge of a silver lining here, which is that it's a revealed preference, that people are revealing that they would rather, you know, spend 50% of their meager income renting their own place than maybe do what they would do 30 or 40 years ago, which was just continue to live in a sort of multi-generational family unit, right? That the demand for housing, like people really want their own place, whether it's to rent or to own. And that is driving a lot of this. And, you know, the the stock of renters is not a fixed demographic number, right? For any given number of humans, the number of like renting households can fluctuate quite, quite a lot. And I think one of the things we saw during the pandemic, and indeed, one of the things that we've seen over the past 20 years, is the the number of renters per million Americans 
has been sort of going up. The households per person, if that's a weird sort of metric that you can think of, has been going up. And so, you know, the solution to all of this, there is only one solution to any of this, which is we need to build a lot more housing. And especially when it comes to the lowest income Americans, we need to build a lot more public housing. We need um, not just the states, but the federal government to come in and create housing for people to live in. I live in a wonderful apartment that was built by the government to house middle class New Yorkers. And it's great. And they don't do that anymore. And they need to go back to doing that because subsidies will never solve this problem. It's a fundamental supply and demand problem, which can only be solved by increasing supply. It can also be helped along by zoning changes. You know, a lot of there's a lot of housing rent, renter segregation in the United States because so many areas um, are zoned only for single family use. And some cities have been experimenting and changing zoning laws. I think I want to say Minneapolis has done some some work where you know you you rezone so that multifamily units can be built there. I mean, I'm kind of adding on to what Felix is saying, which is like, we need more housing stock. And I'm like, yes, and we need to change some zoning laws too so we can actually build that housing stock. And this is, and we had a whole episode of this with Conor Doherty, of course, which I can highly recommend going back to listen to. Nothing really has changed since then. But of course, the big opposition here, if you go into a city which is single family zoned or a neighborhood that is single, single family zoned and say like, we want to zone this for higher density and more multifamily and that kind of thing, the existing inhabitants of that neighborhood who are the owner occupiers and therefore the richer part of the American population say, no, we don't want that because we don't want to live next to poorer people who are renters. And that's going to, you know, damage our housing values and that kind of thing. And you get eternal NIMBY opposition to this. And the fact is for better or for worse, rich homeowners vote, poorer renters vote at a much lower rate. And the electeds who control these kind of zoning decisions wind up doing what their constituents want them to do. Well, I also want to I want to push back against an earlier point just a little bit when you say subsidies don't help at all. They do help enormously for homeless people. People are actually unhoused because just being housed by itself has a lot of knock on effects. It makes it easier for people to get employment. It makes it easier for them to get social services in a way that when you're completely unhoused, you just can't do so there is a lot of research that says if you can get somebody into even temporary housing, that makes a huge long-term dis- difference. And it's not a matter of whether or not they stay on those subsidies. It's it's mm-hmm. just a matter of being in housing for long but enough. But what I'm saying, what I'm saying is that like turning cash into housing is non-trivial. Getting someone who's unhoused into a house is actually more complicated than just throwing money at them. And really, the way that you need to do that at scale is by building housing for those people to live in. And giving them the money to to, to pay the rent. Yes. I mean, generally, when that does happen, it's, it happens through a voucher system. You know, it's not a cash equivalent, but it, it works very similarly. It's not just a matter of having the housing stock and then just giving people lottery assignments. Yeah, no, and and the Harvard report goes into a lot of detail about the existing voucher systems and, you know, insofar as they work, they're good at what they do. And I think we can all agree that they're inadequate to the scale of the problem and they should be much bigger. But I guess my point is that the if you if you expanded, you know, section eight and, and the existing voucher systems to include 
everyone in America who was unhoused, there just isn't enough housing in America to house all of those people. You do need to build more. Sure. Mm -hmm. So, Felix, what were we fighting about then? <laughs> I think you've actually come around to just agree with everything I was saying. That's what happened. What that? I mean, you are a very persuasive person, Emily. <laughs> it, it's 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 very hard for me to disagree with you for any length of time. <laughs> okay, I'm going to take a quick tea break here, and when we come back, we're going to talk about parental leave. If you, on the other hand, find the ad break annoying and not an opportunity to make yourself a cup of tea. Then sign up for Slate Plus. Emily, you are a Slate Plus subscriber. Why? The question is not why subscribe to Slate Plus. The question is why wouldn't you subscribe to Slate Plus, Felix? <laughs> okay. First of all, if you subscribe to Slate Plus and you love Slate Money and other podcasts, there are no ads on any of it. No ads. Plus, you get unlimited access to everything on Slate.com. You don't hit a paywall or anything like that, which is actually really nice. Slate has some really good stories lately. There's this one I read yesterday where they tell you the exact right time to do everything in your life from like when to get up and when to eat lunch and when to exercise. They said 7 a.m. is the ideal time to get up. Anyways, and you also get bonus podcast content for this episode. Our Slate Plus was about tea and you taught everyone listening who was smart enough to sign up for Slate Plus about tea and the proper way to make tea. Anyways, sign up for Slate Plus. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people camp here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people threatening me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's rebel billionaire on the slow newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Emily? Yes. I feel like you want to rant about parental leave again. Um, yes, of course. And I have an excuse. Okay, tell me. So this week, this past week, there was a public relations disaster at a company called Kite Baby. That's K-Y-T-E, baby. It's this very Texas small business owned by a woman. It bills itself as woman-owned they make baby clothes out of bamboo. They're, they build themselves also as very baby-friendly, okay? Women-owned, baby-friendly. Yeah, who would want to buy baby clothes from a company that wasn't baby-friendly? Right. You don't want to buy baby clothes from an anti-baby company. <laughs> Though I feel like if the price is low enough, maybe you would. But that's a different discussion. So what happened was one of their employees, a woman named Marissa Hughes, she was working in marketing. She adopted a baby. The baby was born prematurely, just at 22 weeks. So she needed to travel to a hospital hours away from where she worked in person to, you know, be with the baby while he was in the NICU. She could have taken two weeks for maternity leave, but there was a hitch already in that the company doesn't just let you take maternity leave. They make you sign a contract committing to working six months once you get back. And this woman, Marissa Hughes, she was like, well, I don't know how long I'm going to be at the hospital in the NICU with my new baby. Like, I don't think I could commit to that six six months in person. Can I work remotely? They were like, absolutely not. And then they say, Marissa Hughes made the decision. 
(laughs) she opted then to leave, which obviously she was de facto fired, right? Because she only has two weeks leave and then she has to come back to an office, but she can't because her baby is in the NICU. So this causes, it's TikTok exists now and is fun and it causes all the influencer moms who've been buying these like, you know, influencer baby clothes to freak out and post videos, throwing away their onesies and saying, I'm never shopping at this company again because did I mention the woman's sister posted the whole story and that's when it starts going viral and it's this whole PR disaster for this company. The CEO winds up posting her own TikTok video. The first one, it's canned. You can tell she's kind of like memorized a speech. I wanted to hop on here to sincerely apologize to Marissa for how her parental leave was communicated and handled in the midst of her. She says something like, I have the utmost respect for babies. I have the utmost respect for babies families, and the adoption community. (laughs) Blah, blah, blah. It's just a terrible, (laughs) terrible apology. It's quickly, everyone says it's a terrible apology. So she comes back and the second, she posts another apology video. I just posted a official apology on TikTok and the comments were right. It was scripted. I memorized it. And this time she's got no makeup on and she's almost like breathless. Oh, like I'm back again and I'm doing it again. I'm apologizing again because I the first apology wasn't a good one. I, I admit I memorized it. Da, 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 da. And she says, she says the company will take another look at its policy and, and see what can be fixed and, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm sorry. And I would, you know, rethink about the whole thing and review our company's policy. But she doesn't really acknowledge, you know, the heart of the problem, which is like two weeks maternity leave, two weeks parental leave is not enough leave. And that's not the problem of this one little company. It's, you know, it's a big, broad societal problem. And the other issue um, that we talked about when we prepared for this show, because we don't just throw it together, um, is that this is yet another case of, you know, a girl boss kind of failure. Because, right, because this woman, the CEO is supposed to be a proud mom and all this, but at the end of the day, she's not she's not treating the other proud moms very well. So big real issue here is not, you know, relatively young, first time CEO makes a mistake and has to apologize for it. So much as it's that this mistake is one that is even possible to make. That it yes. is possible for a company in Texas to have a policy saying, well, you get two weeks if you're lucky, but you have to sign a contract saying you'll come back to the office for at least six months. And in basically no other developed country in the world would that be the case. In America, it's on the companies to give parental leave, and it's up to them to decide how much to give. And that comes out of their bottom line. And if yes. you're a you know money losing startup, then it can cost you a lot of money to give parental leave, especially when, as in the case of Kite Baby, most of your employees are you know in that kind of demographic that's likely to get pregnant. And so, what we really need is a system where it's not on the company to make these decisions, and in fact, it's just benefit that is provided by the government, which happens everywhere else. That's right. And we should say, I guess we could say that the United States has an unpaid leave law, but it it leaves out a lot of employees because it only kicks in if you've worked someplace for a year. And if you work at a company, I think it's with more than 50 employees. So it leaves out a lot of people. And also because it's unpaid, it doesn't cost it doesn't cost the the government anything. Like the point the point about uh, you know, government mandated parental leave is that 
the government should pay for it. Yes. In the states that have these policies, I think it's it's like a handful right now, maybe like five or six, the leave is paid for from payroll taxes. So like in New York, where we all live, I pay every every month. It's not a lot of money, um, a, a payroll tax. And if I need paid leave, not just if you know have a baby, but if I need to take care of a relative or something like that, I can take paid leave from the state. It doesn't cover my whole salary or anything, but some portion of it. What kind of maternity leave did you take, Emily? This is what got me on on about this topic, <laughs> actually, because my my first maternity leave was eleven weeks, and it was basically like it was disability insurance and then like some vacation. But there was no at the time I was at the Wall Street Journal, they didn't have any paid parental leave. They were like, "You can take up to six months off," and I was like, "Oh wow, what's the pay?" And they're like, "No, there's no pay. You get four weeks full pay through disability, two more weeks at sixty percent, and then good luck." Yeah, I had two months on disability, and uh, my husband was at the Daily News at the time, had no paternity leave and only two weeks of vacation. So that's where <laughs> the two weeks of vacation went. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember because then the first year you have no you have no <laughs> vacation. Yeah. It's, it's my idea of vacation, just dealing with a brand new human in the house. But things are really changing because now the journal has pretty decent for the United States actual parental leave for both fathers wow. and mothers. Rupert Murdoch coming through. Because I think their union fought for it. Um, and, you know, things are changing and employers are doing this, but this the percentage of employers who do it are pretty pretty small too. I think I think it's a relatively large proportion of what you might call large employers of white-collar professionals. Yes, yes. But overall, only 27% of workers in the private sector have access to paid parental leave, according to the BLS. That's almost double from where it was a decade ago, but you can see that's a pretty small number. Yeah, and some of this is just a matter of policy because there's a huge swath of voters who still regard maternity leave as an issue that primarily or only affects women. And they don't realize that it's subsidizing the ability of men to work if they have families. I mean, it's just weird because like, the, the advocacy, advocacy groups will share with you all this polling that people really support this kind of policy, but like the political appetite to do it is de minimis. And, and even though there is appetite on the Republican side, their ideas for paid parental leave are like so cockamamie. They're like tax credits or, you know, like just things that don't really move the needle. Or like there was a plan a few years ago, I think maybe from Paul Ryan. And it was like, we'll take money. You can you can take social security early to pay for your parental leave, but it's like, but that just is shifting. It's like then you're just paying for it. Like you're Yeah. <laughs> right. They're like, you just retire a little later. And it's like, but what? Like, no. <laughs> These are the same people who are complaining that birth rates are low, by the way, and while simultaneously disincentivizing everyone to have children. Yeah, I, I don't buy that one, Elizabeth, I have to say. And I've had like fights with Matt Iglesias about this and this kind of thing. But if you look at the countries with the lowest birth rates in the world, they generally have incredibly generous parental leave policies. Um, you know, we were just looking at China, where they, I think everyone automatically gets 98 days and it goes up from there very, very quickly. Like, and, you know, look at Italy or Spain or any of these countries with like, you know, birth rates of 1.2 or whatever. And like, it doesn't work. There's not a strong correlation there. In fact, there's not any correlation there at all. I think there's, if you look at polling among younger people about why they're not having kids, 
like you, they will tell you it's it's because they don't think that they can afford them. That's that's the number one reason. So it, that may have been true, you know, for the last generation of parents, maybe Gen Xers, early millennials. But for people who are deciding now whether to have kids, at least in the self-reporting, they point to economic factors as the number one cause. Yeah, I think that's always the case, though. I think I think that that has like I think that's been the case for forever. Also in China, there's a specific, you know, I, I think part of that too is that the one child policy was around for so long that culturally it became more, I think, normalized to have only one child. You, and it's hard to sort of roll that back overnight. It is a conundrum though. I mean, t- to Felix's point, like on the one hand, you want to say, look, if as a country, we want to raise the birth rate, you should be rolling out every possible policy to encourage people to have children. And obviously good parental leave is one of those policies, universal childcare, all of that stuff. And then countries that do that though, they don't see the birth rates going up and it is kind of a conundrum of like, well, what else are we supposed to do? Like, you know, and I I don't really know the answer. Well, I I know the, I know the answer, but a lot of people won't like it. Ew. Is it something really gross? And like, (laughs) no, it's not gross. It's good. It's, it's just massively increased immigration. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, let's move on to wine, shall we? I feel like this is a very important segment that is of interest to most of our listeners. And there's also one that the three of us are weirdly unqualified to talk about because we're going to talk about Josh wine, which is a major cultural phenomenon across the United States, but much less so in New York, which has bizarrely idiosyncratic liquor licensing laws, and where having incredible distribution capacity to every drugstore and supermarket in the state doesn't help you as a winemaker because drugstores and supermarkets in New York State are not allowed to sell wine. So we don't live in a world where every time we go shopping, we are faced with a bunch of Josh wine bottles, and they seem to be perfectly good and acceptable, and we buy them for $12 each and drink them at barbecues. But that is America these days. I think I have a couple of anadata points around that. <laughs> I didn't, uh, my, my brother, my younger brother is a wine distributor in Alabama, and there are certain wines that are sort of above us a certain price point, and I can't remember what it is, like $12, $15, where people, if, if it's on a grocery store shelf, it looks like the fancy wine, you know? But it's still below, I think, what what would be considered a upper mid-market wine. 
in a New York store where you just have an insane amount of variety and you don't in a lot of these markets. So if you're looking at, um, there's another wine called Miomi that does really well on the same basis, but maybe isn't as viral as Josh because people seem very tickled by the fact that there is a wine called Josh. And that seems to <laughs> Making the wine called Josh really worked and various other things worked, which we can talk about, including just really beefing up the flavor profile of it. And it's become this big phenomenon and it's become like the new mass market sort of affordable luxury that instead of getting the sort of entry level wines, the little penguins and the barefoots and that kind of stuff, which quite disgusting, people go up a notch, they spend an extra four or five bucks and they get something that you can taste is better than barefoot and also kind of tastes a little bit more, I don't want to say sophisticated, but just bigger and more expensive. And the bottles are heavier and it has this kind of parchment label on with real texture to it. And you just feel like it's a more luxurious experience. And the idea is, according to this one tweet that went viral and started a whole series of memes, that if you used to be drinking Barefoot or, and this is fascinating, Stella, which is not a wine at all, which is a Belgian beer, then what you do if you're upwardly mobile is you upgrade from Barefoot and Stella to Josh. It's funny, Stella and Josh sounds like a baby clothes brand. <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like I know a brother and sister. <laughs> Have either of you tried Josh one? I've had Josh. I've My um, a family member uh, a few a year, years ago came over and she was like, go get us some wine, get that Josh. And I was like, what? And she was, and she said that Josh, it's so good. Get the Josh. And like, that's hilarious. And of course I'm going to buy Josh wine. I mean, that, that's like half of what's happening. We already said it's half of what's happening. It's better than Todd wine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and also people named Josh by Josh. And that's like a big demographic. People named Josh. It was a popular name. Yeah. It's like the fourth most popular name exactly so so you get all the joshes buying it and you get people buying it for all of the joshes and and then but mostly what it is what it, it seems Good to be branding. just a, a distribution um they've really cracked the ability to make basically infinite quantities of this stuff and get it distributed to every corner of the united states and that is a, a really really well impossible thing to do if you're a real winemaker you know if you have a vineyard somewhere with a finite number of vines and you make a bunch of wine from that vineyard and then try and sell it to people, eventually you've sold the wine and that's that. Josh is not really a wine in that sense. It's more of a brand and they just buy a whole bunch of grapes from all over Northern California and they do a whole bunch of weird scientific stuff to those grapes with various additives and what have you. And then Eventually, what comes out the other end is a very, very consistent juice that you can sell in as much quantity as you like. And it's a curious corner of the wine world, right? This kind of mass-produced wine, which if you look at the sort of revealed preference of Americans, like the wines that do well, the wines that do well are really not the wines that like all of the cool wine drinker type people like. They're not the wines that we're all faced with in New York, the you know, the minerally whites and the lower alcohol reds and the grower champagnes and that kind of stuff. It's the 
big red Cabernets and Syrahs and Merlots from Cap from California and the super buttery oaky Chardonnays and they're all very high alcohol and that's what people like. I'm surprised. It's weird that wine isn't like every other kind of alcohol, mass produced, like branded. It's just this small market, small batch kind of a thing, actually. Because when you think about when you were describing Josh, that's like everything. Well, most of it, most of it is mass produced. Most of it is like is is Josh. To be honest, like in terms of in terms of the market, most of it is branded, mass produced stuff. Oh, okay. And and like. When you think of winemakers, and if you if you were to see you know my wine cellar at home and look at all of the labels and see all of the winemakers, you'd be like, oh, isn't this this lovely like artisanal handmade product? But the fact is that I'm an outlier. Like that is not what most wine is. Don't you think part of it too though has to do with uh, import rules and the cost of importing? Because California wines have a certain profile, but you know it's easier to sell in the U.S. <laughs> U.S. made wine. Depends on where you are, interestingly enough. One thing that any New Yorker will tell you is that French wine is cheaper than Californian wine, partly because it is cheaper to ship wine from France to New York than it is to ship wine from California to New York. You know, literal shipping on a ship, on a boat, is much cheaper than overground shipping, which is what you need to do from California. In California, you're right. It's much harder to get French wines. But that's also because California is a wine region and wine regions always prefer their own wines. So it's it's complex. I don't think I don't think that's the main reason, but it is part of it is that, you know, California is the wine country of America. And so California style wines tend to be more enjoyed in America. I think that's that's true. I also wonder, so I, I seem to remember a couple of years ago, Josh had an actual broadcast commercial and it showed, you know, one of the people who are involved with the family who the Josh is named after some or so is related to whoever the original Josh is, you know, holding up the bottle and saying, this is part of my family heritage, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but the last time I think I saw an advertisement for wine on you know a national broadcast channel it was you know from my childhood and it's it's you know pseudo kind of uh Bartles and James commercials and or James. Martini you know, and Rossi yes something yes <laughs> Mandavi the the sort of lower end Mandavi wines yeah it's it's yeah Josh Josh is the new Mondavi really when and well I mean you know Mondavi became Tubuck Chuck and Tubuck Chuck became Josh. Like there's a, there's a, in, in between there was Barefoot somewhere along the line. There's always like a big wine brand and it changes every decade or so. I did want to come in and just note a little bit of the stuff that not only are you allowed to put into wine in order to standardize the flavors and make sure there's no vintage variation or bottle variation or anything interesting like that. Not only are you allowed to do this, but actually technically under American law, you are not allowed to reveal that you're doing it. The reason why companies like Josh don't talk about all of the additives in their wine is because they're not allowed to. There's a whole weird rule about that. But in any case, you are allowed up to 6.7 pounds per 1,000 gallons of wine of, get this, polyvinyl limidazole or 1,2-divinyl limidazolidone or 
anyway, a whole long list of these crazy things that I think most people just don't know is being added to their wine to just homogenize it. Is that the stuff that gives me a headache? Do you think it is? I mean, I it's I it's an interesting debate in the in the wine world. There is a general belief, I would say, that natural wines that don't have a lot of additives in them are less likely to give you a headache than mass-produced wines like Josh. It is also true that natural wines without lots of additives tend to be lower alcohol than oh. mass-produced wines like Josh, and they have lower sugar contents. So it could just be a function of the amount of alcohol. But yeah, I feel like just intuitively speaking, all of that stuff can't be good for you. Also, we should mention that this is an old person conversation because <laughs> apparently younger consumers don't have the mind share of wine that older consumers have, according to a report that that we were sent. People over under the age of 65 aren't drinking as much wine as they used to. And wine sales overall were, were down last year. It's less popular than it used to be. Yeah. Gen Z is drinking less than prior generations. Yeah, drinking less of anything. Of anything. Um, yeah. And yeah, and this is a global phenomenon. If you look at, especially domestic red wine sales in France if you, like if there's like an archetypal place where everyone is drinking a glass of red wine with their dinner every night it would be France they have fallen off a cliff they're actually now i think i'm right in saying that red wine sales in France are actually lower now than even rosé um people are moving in France and i think this is a very sensible thing to do they're moving from those big sort of tannic reds into whites pinks, things that are easier to drink and less bitter. May I also say that drinking alcohol is not that good for you. And, <laughs> and drinking alcohol is not that good for you. And I think, yeah, I think drinking alcohol in general is bad for you. And yeah, the kids these days, they seem to be much more into the white claw than they are into the wine. And the cannabis. So, Felix, and you drink probably, you, you're more of a wine drinker than I think Emily and I are, and you're more, I Definitely. think, sophisticated about it. So what's your go-to josh priced level wine that you go for so this is where i cannot be helpful <laughs> i i i live in this manhattan bubble i live in a world where my local wine stores have amazing wines from all over the world many of which are incredibly good value and i'll find some like you know vineyard in austria which makes tiny quantities of Grunewelten or something, but I can still manage to buy it for $15 a bottle, and it'll be great. But if I can find out at my local wine store, probably it's not even available in Midtown, let alone in Alabama, right? It's I can't give you a brand. All I can say is that if you can find a way to go to an actual wine store rather than the supermarket, and maybe look more to the old world, look to you know, Germany, France, Spain, Italy, and talk to people and be adventurous and don't look for big brands, just look for wines that people have put love into and that aren't just mass produced. That's a pretty good tactic. But how do you do that? Because, okay, so I am not a big drinker at all and wine probably less so, but like every so often I have to like buy a bottle of wine to bring to someone's apartment or something or house. So then go to the wine store and there's like a bajillion bottles of wine and 
I don't know how to pick them. So sometimes I just fly blind. I look at the labels and the price and I just go for it. Or like I'll ask the dude in the store and I'm just like, I'm in your hands. But like, I I have a trick for that 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 may or may not be. Oh, yeah. May or may not be valid. But I, um, there are a couple of importers that I trust. So I turn the bottle around and see if it's an importer that Mm. I like. Yeah. Yeah. My wife has a very visual memory. And I remember um, early on when she was like, how do I? pick a wine exactly your question emily and i said two men in the boat exactly what elizabeth just said if you turn the bottle over and you see two men in the boat then that means it was imported by kermit lynch who's one of the biggest most venerable importers in america and you can basically trust it but yeah like people who work in wine stores work in wine stores generally because they really like wine and they know what they're talking about and if you put yourself in their hands and and do what you said emily and just say like, you know, this is where I'm going. This is how much money I have. Find me something like good and interesting and great value. Like that is what they live for. Like, and they know more <laughs> about it than you do. It's legitimately great idea to ask them. Okay. Well, I'll just keep at it. Or maybe I'll just bring juice or maybe tea, <laughs> maybe tea. See what I did for you there, Felix? I said oh, tea. Did you, did you? Set up a segue to the Slate Plus segment on tea. I did. I set up a segment. Okay, but before we have the Slate Plus segment on tea, we need to have a numbers round. And I'm going to kick this one off because we're in this food and wine kind of zone right now. With 100 billion, that is the number of dollars that American Express cardholders spent on restaurants in 2023. It's the first time they've hit the $100 billion mark. And I feel like that's just a milestone worth noting. People, we've seen a lot of very positive consumer sentiment and consumer spending numbers recently. But if you really want a sign of how healthy the economy is right now, people are spending $100 billion on Amex alone just going out to eat. And 2.8% of that is Felix by himself. (laughs) (laughs) Rich people are feeling good about the economy right now. And I would imagine Amex users skew a little higher income. This is true. This is true. Elizabeth, what's your number? My number is $2,500. And that's the value of a car trunk full of Stanley cooler cups that are called quenchers because they're like 24 ounces and they're super trendy right now among teens. And uh, and women in a way that Stanley products have not historically been. Uh, so the woman who stole twenty five hundred dollars worth of Stanley cups was <laughs> charged with grand theft and a DUI, which might explain some of it. But so this this sent me down a rabbit hole around Stanley. And in twenty twenty three, Stanley is projected to make seven hundred and fifty million dollars in revenue, and that's up from seventy three million in twenty nineteen. Oh my god! Gives you a sense of <laughs> the scale of this increasingly bizarre to me trend. So. It, it is a wonderful trend. It is it, it is a bizarre trend which I don't understand. But yeah, the the tweens, man, like they they get collections of these things. They have a dozen Stanley cups in different colors, and they've become fashion items. And I, it's amazing. And bless them. I don't really get the Stanley Cup has like a built-in straw. And my question is like, how gross are those straws? All those tweens drinking out of these cups, not cleaning the straw. They're hard to clean for adults too. I I just think it's a kind of gross trend. Also, how many bottles of Josh can you fit in a Stanley Ah. printer? 
$2,500 worth of Josh <laughs> in the stolen Stanley Cup. Did you say it's 24 ounces? Uh, I think so, yeah. That's a bottle of wine. There you Boom. go. You can fit a whole bottle of Josh in there pretty much. <laughs> How can I um, Emily. I really struggled to come up with a number, and I have a lot of other options besides the one I'm going to go with. So if people are curious, I have other ones involving <laughs> the Subway sandwich shop, auto insurance, and inflation. But those aren't my numbers. My number is 19,000. 19,000. That is the number of new workers that Chipotle wants <laughs> to hire ahead of, wait for it, Burrito season, which oh. apparently runs from March to May. Who knew? Please write in, people. <laughs> Slate money at slate.com because even Chipotle couldn't answer this for me. I talked to the senior vice president of something, something communication, something, something Chipotle. She did explain to me the burrito season has nothing to do with burritos in particular. It is just the season what? when their sales peak. <laughs> It's not like that when their burrito sales peak and everything else is the same. It's just like Chipotle sales go up between March and May. And she says, she said, she kind of waved her hand vaguely in the direction of the weather's getting warmer and there's more daylight. Yeah, that makes kind of it makes sense. And it's not too hot yet for you don't right. eat a burrito bowl when it's 95 degrees out, I don't think. No, but the obvious question is you get exactly the same <laughs> amount of daylight and exactly the same daytime temperatures in the fall. So why isn't the fall burrito season? Because it's spice latte season. <laughs> That's pumpkin spice <laughs> latte. That's one. true. <laughs> okay, people. In the spring, we eat burritos. In the fall, we drink spice lattes. Now I am an American after 27 years in this country. I will finally understand this country now. <laughs> okay. I think we need to wrap it up there. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for writing in on sleepmoney at slate.com. Thanks to Jared Downing, Shana Roth, and Merritt Jacob for producing. Thanks for subscribing to Slate Plus. If you do, you will listen to a whole thing about tea. And we will be back on Tuesday with one of the best episodes that you are going to listen to for a very long time. We have James Troy coming on he is an economics professor who has read more personal finance books than you can conceivably imagine the list is so long and he just goes down the list of all of the advice in these books and basically says which advice is good which advice is bad what makes sense economically what doesn't he's a great guy so listen to that on tuesday and then we'll be back the following saturday with more slate money and on until the end of time 